testing. One, two, three, one, two, three. Can y'all hear me now? Good? Cool. All right. Welcome to the 31st episode of The Haunted Hacker. Um, I am Mike Jones, your host, and we have Ryan Williams. Good morning. I'm at it. Wow. <laughs> we have uh, Gabe, who is also another one of our co-hosts, and Tanisha. Y'all probably recognize Tanisha from a previous episode. Um, she joined us as a guest, and now she's a co-host. Yeah. And we have uh, some great guests tonight. I'm going to go over a little bit of housekeeping and a little bit of rules, and we'll go from there. Um, housekeeping, uh, just a little bit about the podcast for you guys that are new to the podcast. Um, we have been around since last October on Halloween night, and don't plan on going anywhere. Uh, we do an episode every Saturday and, uh, we switch it up with, um, different guests. Sometimes we do, uh, former hackers and cybersecurity professionals. Uh, we try to make it a wide variety. Um, after the podcast airs, it gets recorded and played on TechStrong TV for, I believe they have like 10,000 viewers on their, their digital anarchist, uh, feed. Um, and then we're also on all of the major platforms for uh, podcast streaming, like Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, uh, Pandora, all that stuff. Um, so that's that. So news. I don't have a whole lot of groundbreaking news for, for our group, other than uh, we got our cabinet in for the Haunted Hacker Arcade, uh, which I'm going to put together. And we are actually going to auction one off uh, on one of the podcasts coming up. Um, something like 2000 games, uh, it's tabletop arcade, uh, controls, all that good stuff. Um, and we have a lot of like UK merchandise going out. Uh, Damo is on the, uh, the podcast as well. And I don't know where he went, but, um, he has coffee mugs and all kinds of t-shirts and stuff that, that he sells. Uh, we also have a Teespring store, um, online. You can go to it. It's under haunted hacker podcast. We have t-shirts, hoodies, stuff for babies, everything. Um, we have a whole list of stuff. And we're gonna be opening up some new merchandise soon. Uh, can't, really go into, can't go into that yet, but uh, we'll uh, discuss it during one of our admin meetings. Um, so that's it. Uh, in the actual cybersecurity news, um, I haven't heard a whole lot this week, although I've been quite busy with trying to get uh, code written and stuff like that. So I've been kind of MIA while I've been developing some stuff. Uh, but next week will be different. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know a whole lot as far as uh, the news goes. I know the MTA um, got hacked earlier this year. The pipeline got hacked. Uh, I think they're doing a footprint of the US for critical infrastructure and probably getting ready for an active uh, attack that's gonna be pretty nasty, uh, multifaceted. For those of you who weren't on the last podcast, I got some information about how DarkSide does some of the uh, attacks, uh, deploying ransomware, and then at the same time hitting them with a 16 megabyte uh, or 16 gigabyte a second um, uh, denial of service, distributed denial of service, DUS. So that, that can cause like some major problems as far as trying to fight uh, a breach. Was well, that um, just running distraction or? What's that? Were they using that to run distraction or? Yeah. Implement yeah. The 
Yeah, it was more like a smoke screen, right? So, and it's it's a pretty common method of attack. So you throw up like a denial of service or take down a phone system and everybody runs to that while you're smoking a database on the other side. Um, so yeah, it's multifaceted. Uh, a lot of people thought that um, they didn't quite know what they had gotten into as far as the target. Um, I found out later on uh, this week, just a couple of days ago, that may not be the actual uh, data behind it. Um, I think they did know exactly what they were doing and who they were attacking, especially once they got into the systems. So did they get out clean? Or I know there's some controversy around them not paying their, their ransomware bills, you know? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, you know, I'm not really sure. Uh, I know that once the uh, law enforcement went after Darkseid, uh, Darkseid tend to uh, disappear and crawl into a rock pretty quick. I'm not really sure what happened with that. Uh, they said that their website got taken down. I don't know if Aunt Phoebes did that, the FBI, or if that was uh, another group, or maybe they did it just to, you know, look like they're innocent. Uh, yeah, we're not here. Uh, yeah, so taking down your, so for those of you who are, who are gray hats or, or maybe even a black hat listening, um, yeah, taking down your own website doesn't uh, sell me on the fact that you didn't do what you did. Uh, so <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure they exist somewhere, probably on a deep web, dark web. Um, but I'm sure they'll be back again. Uh, they did something close to I think I don't know how many billions of dollars it was total uh, that they've gotten from ransomware, but it was a, a pretty large Not, amount. They got away with ninety million. That's uncountable. Yeah, yeah it's close to a billion. Yeah. Nine months' work, I think, was the. Uh... Yeah. They, I mean, they, they were, they had what, five different uh, victims last year. And then they had uh, uh, the one this year, Colonial, uh, which, you know, I, I don't know why they paid the, the ransom, you know, but they did supposedly or cut a deal for it. Um, but in the US, we don't uh, bargain with cyber terrorists or terrorist organizations, supposedly, um, but they got paid. So with that being said, um, we don't have any pressing news for the haunted crew. Um, everything's good. Y'all are, are super impressive. The magazines are coming out. When Ryan, the seventh, right? There's a first. Seventh, yeah, man. Oh, that's uh, that's tomorrow. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> once you once you take it once you take a second and tell us about the magazine real quick for those who who haven't heard about it. Uh, okay, so we're haunted hacker Australia is uh, launching a magazine. Uh, uh, it comes out tomorrow. I've had I think an hour and a half sleep. Uh, Turns out everyone likes to submit their articles uh, right on the deadline. So thanks everyone for that. It's awesome, awesome, so much fun. But yeah, um, we've got some really good stuff. Have you got giveaways from uh, DroneSec? They've given us a, a range of courses and a certification. Um, uh, some memberships to Pentester Lab. We've got articles on all sorts of stuff from all areas, from hacks through to high level, sea level stuff. It's uh, yeah, it's turned out really well, man. And uh, that comes out. Monday morning or your Monday morning, my Monday afternoon. Um, and if you go to the LinkedIn, I believe there's a subscribe link if you want to get it first to kind of be in, in the chance for to actually win the giveaways, man. Um, what's we got? Awesome. Yeah, oh, there's all sorts of stuff there, man. It's a bit of a crypto, it's a bit of stenography. It makes it's, it's a gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. So, so. Those of you who don't know, like we decided to do a security bulletin. We put that bulletin out. I think it was out maybe like a couple of days. And then we had people who were asking where to find it, how to subscribe, 
um, they wanted a subscription uh, to the to the feed. So we decided to go with a magazine and Ryan put together this awesome template uh, that looks like a legit uh, magazine. Um, so uh, Hacking Nine Magazine and 2600, you're on report. We're coming to get you. Um, so let's get started. Ryan, why don't you take the honors of introducing our guest? Now, it's Paul. Paul here. I can't actually see him. Is he in here somewhere? Or? What's up? Paul's in here. Yeah, Ryan. I'm here. Oh, nice. Hey, man. How you doing? Good. So um, I, I, I'm going to let you introduce yourself because I've been away for about six minutes and I'm going to go. Uh, I need to. Uh, I'm going to let you take it for Paul. And tell us about um, Merimesto and what it is you do. <laughs> Sounds great. Th thanks, Ryan. Thanks, thanks, Mike, for having us uh, on this morning. It's a it's a uh, bitterly cold, and when I say bitterly cold, it's Sydney bitterly cold. So it's about eight degrees Celsius here at seven a.m. Uh, it's one of those mornings where you're kind of really waiting for a glass of red wine and your roast, you know, your roast beef and your Yorkshire pudding at five o'clock, right? So. Um, uh, Mary Mezzo uh, is uh, the culmination of about oh, 80 years of experience. We have two of our other founders on the call as well, as well, Campbell and uh, Andrew Bly. And uh, we, uh, about two years ago, we, we had been talking about how do we, uh, how do we work together to, to change and adjust the practice of educating pen testers, cybersecurity engineers, digital forensics officers, people who work in a SOC uh, from a, from a self-learned, um, uh, self-paced type of education where people kind of just go on YouTube or look at you know, magazines and kind of try to hack their way through learning um, and, um, or going in and doing academic study, going into university, spending four years at university, then coming out and really not having any experience or skills and seeing where we could bridge those two, those two kind of uh, avenues for learning. Um, so, so Campbell, I'll let Campbell and Andrew introduce themselves in a minute, but uh, they have, you know, between them, I, they won't like me saying this, but decades of experience in this space. Um, so as a couple of old guys, we decided that instead of um, uh, spending 16, 18, 20 hours, you know, doing pen tests, doing digital forensics uh, engagements and consultancy work, uh, we were all getting a bit tired. We were all getting a bit gray in the hair that we would try and teach everybody else how to do this from our experience. So uh, we've taken the, um, the avenue that the guys built in the UK around the cyber scheme uh, and the tiger scheme, and we're applying that to um, essentially the four disciplines, right? So offensive security, um, SOC or defensive monitoring, digital forensics, cybersecurity engineering and incident response, and giving people practical skills that make them essentially job ready. So one of the things that we, we find is people come out of school, um, come out of a course that they've done, uh, they have all the technical skills, but they don't have any of the experience. And Ryan will be able to attest to this in Australia. There's always talk of skill shortage, skill shortage, skill shortage. <laughs> but what we find is it's not a skill shortage, it's really an experience shortage. And so if we can help with uh, the, the new and upcoming cohort of, of cybersecurity, uh, uh, the cybersecurity people are coming through uh, into the industry and short circuit a lot of their experience, we'll be able to fill that gap 
and, and, and really start doing some high quality, good work for customers, governments, for themselves, get young people into the industry really quickly, get them earning money at a higher rate than their peers. Um, and then um, as they grow in the industry, they kind of shift from place to place, right? You start out of a, as a hacker, you get into incident response, you get into digital forensics, and then hopefully they'll start a business, they'll make millions of dollars, and then they'll hire the next 20 pen testers or whatever, uh, you know, the next generation. So that's the idea. We've been around for about two years. We have an office in the UK. Uh, we have, I'm here in Sydney. We have a team in Canberra. Uh, and uh, we're looking at uh, obviously building up both the, um, the the courses that we sell directly and, and provide directly to individuals, but also then helping you know enterprises with their teams as well, uh, and looking at how do we branch out and 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 build that capability in emerging economies like you know Sri Lanka or Sub-Saharan Africa or the Philippines where there's a lot a lot of people really starting to do a lot of high quality work, but they don't have the experience and or the mentorship to be able to start doing really high value work in places like the UK, Canada, the US, Australia, New Zealand. That's what attracted me to, to the, the, ask you guys on the show, just the, 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 like the physical approach to it, like actually getting a hand in experience, which is what so many people are lacking. Um, I know with my own experience that it was, yeah, it's the hardest thing to get is that hands-on hands-on experience. I think the Maramesto way is like really intriguing. I like the way the build a solid foundation level and then to build that up. That's what that's why they're here, Mike. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I I like the I like the approach. So I mean, just the fact that that you acknowledge the fact that people come out of school not having enough experience or enough to get into the workplace, I think is huge. And that's a huge identification. And as far as the skills gap goes, so I've been fighting this, this same issue for months. This has been my platform. We don't have a skills gap. Uh, we don't have a shortage. We have a problem of companies hiring correctly um, instead of you know promoting a mid-level to a senior and then bringing you know the entry-level analyst up to the mid-level. They're hiring outside the company and bringing that mid-level directly in. Um, and I'm seeing that across the board. And it's, it's such a travesty because we have such talented people uh, on the coll uh, collegiate level that are just amazing. And we're, we're ruining that talent by making them sit on the bench and wait. Um, and I think that's horrible. So you mentioned, uh, Paul, that you had uh, Campbell um, on, the, on the phone. Um, go ahead and introduce yourself. And uh, let's uh, hear what you have to say about... Uh, the company and, and cybersecurity in general. Well, I'm using mouse. <laughs> he's definitely there. I think he's on mute. Yeah, cool. Yeah, That's yeah, a yeah. kind of myself. Hey, yeah. Mike, nice hey, to Campbell. talk to you again. How you doing, dude? Absolutely. Absolutely. How are you, man? It's good to have uh, you on. It's good to have you on the show. Yeah, I'm good. I was a little um, kind of broadsided because I forgot about this. Uh, so I had my second COVID jab yesterday. And I sat in the pub in the sunshine in the UK from about two o'clock this afternoon. And I, you know, I had to really employ some discipline to just go, no, I need to talk to people. I need to be normal. <laughs> yeah, so it's all good. So hopefully I'll try and be about as normal as I usually am, which is, yeah, people who know me will answer that for you. 
So uh, in terms of, you know, everything you said is absolutely correct. I mean, there's, uh, I've been working in cybersecurity for like 25 years this year. And uh, bringing people up and through the ranks is really important. That's why I founded Merrimatso. Because uh, when I sold Encryption Limited, which was the, the largest privately funded, uh, privately, you know, not, not with external funding, privately owned uh, penetration testing and cybersecurity consultancy in Europe, to a multinational corporate, it just all fell apart. Everything that I built just disintegrated literally in the first couple of months because of the need to, oh, oh the, the desire to just, you know, profit over development. And that was the problem with that company. Um, what I realized within my, you know, in my time in that business was, you know, what we did really, really, really well was take juniors. We took people, unexpected people, people who weren't really, you know, aiming for some of the information security. Uh, and they are now heads of penetration testing or cybersecurity or digital forensics at big brand names. And we did that by looking at the way people think. And that was very important. And uh, a case I, I refer to quite often, which you know, there are many, many cases, was we had a, a guy called, um, well, let's call him Tom just for the sake of calling, you know, for anonymity, who was driving past our office one day, our office in Kidderminster in the UK, which is a terrible place, never go there. Honestly, do not put it on your travel list. It's an awful freaking place, but the office space was cheap and we needed office space. So um, Tom, as we'll call him, knocked on the door and he said, oh, he parked up in a heating engineer, like a plumber's van, don't know. And I knocked on the door and I, what do you want? Uh, I opened the door and said, you guys do cybersecurity. I'm really, really interested in cybersecurity. I said, oh, well, yeah, come in, have a cup of tea, coffee, you know, whatever, whatever. Let's, let's have a chat. It was really good to meet some enthusiastic people who want to talk about what we do and care about privacy. Because let's be honest, what we do is not about glory or guts. It's about protecting people. That's what we do. And this guy clearly was concerned about privacy of his family, of everything. He wanted to do better and make the world better. So I was like, yeah, get on in here. Let's have a cup of tea. Let's chat. You know, let's chew some locks. Let's just talk. And um, turned out, so when, he said, when I say he was a plumber, that's not what this guy did because it became very, very quickly apparent that he was the go-to guy for skyscrapers when they had a problem with their air conditioning or their HVAC or anything else. And he would turn up at a building he'd never been to before, never touched before, and they're showing the plans and he could just reverse engineer what was wrong with it and just go, the problem's over there. I literally hired him on spot, not because of any technical skills that he had, uh, not because of any evidence that he'd been able to produce that he'd, completed hack this site or done capture the flags or done OSCP or whatever because he had the right goddamn mindset and that was what we needed and what we wanted and that guy is now the head and I mean seriously in charge globally of penetration testing and security for a well-known household brand and I'm not going to name it because I'm going to identify the dude but Jesus Danny you were fucking amazing and I really missed that um 
And that's what Merimetso is about. It's about, let's take that understanding. It's not about HR. It's not about what are you, what, what letters have you got behind your name? What have you got? Who are you? Can you do it? Can we drive you? Can we lead you along an avenue of excellence to make you excellent? Because we're not excellent. We all have our good stuff and bad stuff. We've got Dr. Andrew Blythe on the call tonight. Yeah. Uh, who is truly excellent, one of, someone I've aspired to be like my entire life, a very, very old friend of mine, um, and thankfully is also uh, part of Merimetso now. But we're really just like, what can we do? There's so much talent out there, and the talent is often missed. But those talents exist in so many different industries already that they've fallen into. But... We have a if if we have a cybersecurity skills shortage, which you've already alluded to. Um, how do we actually find the, the rock stars? How do we make the the bedstones to use the rock analogy? You know, there are foundations, there are bricks, there are capstones. Cybersecurity is everything from the bottom to the top, and that's what that's the way Merrimets are approaching it. So, Cal, is that, is that um, kind of behind what the first four key courses are that Merimetso offer? Is that why you chose those particular topics? or It, it kind of is, because um, they're the four, like, broad strokes. But I'll be honest, you know, the, the website's a bit out of date. Um, we've kind of been busy with teaching people. <laughs> when, we, when I launched it, it was, um, oh, we need a website. Let's get some stuff down. Um, what we do is not just about, you know, those, those four broad strokes because they're, they're huge. You could take any one of those four pillars and spend your lifetime just investigating them, you know? Um, I want to avoid marketing around yeah. what is good cybersecurity and bad cybersecurity, what's good training, what's bad training. There's a, an approach and that approach is ubiquitous across any of those four, like I say, four broad strokes, four pillars. Uh, that's not all we do. No, it's, by all means, it's not all we do. Um, well, yeah, like I think we broke those, Brian, we broke those and like we broke those things down into four broad strokes. But within those four pillars, there's there's something for everybody, right? There's something for uh, somebody who's, you know, just out of school or, you know, does a little bit of hacking or a bit of coding or a bit of a gamer on the weekend or whatever it is. So your casual type starting out in the industry really kind of wants to get into that space. Somebody who's, who's um, really made a decision to be a part of that, the cyber industry. Um, uh, and, you know, somebody who's been in the industry for a little bit and, you know, just needs to brush up on their skills or is looking for a mentor or looking for somebody who's been in the industry for a very long time. And then there's, you know, where, where Andrew, where Andrew sits right at the kind of the peak of his speciality uh, in, you know, that discipline of you know, oh, yeah. digital forensics and, and IoT um, and having somebody to help you along the journey, as it were. I know it's a bit of a cliche using that term, but um, but really it is like, right? you know, learning is one of those things that is all about failing yeah. from my oh, perspective. Yeah, totally. Right. Totally. And totally. if you no, can I... if you can have somebody kind of sit there and hold your hand the whole time and be there to, to help you and guide you you know, I'm still having people come to me and help me. Campbell is, Andrew is, 
And I think if we can provide that to people, I think that would be great for us. So, and, you know, kind and of I our vision. A, I'll, I'll tell you, I heard a great story just a couple of days ago about um, how we learn, which was uh, if you go to school, you get a test, right? You get a test at the end of the week and a test at the end of the month. You pass or fail it. What relevance does that have to real life? Because I'm a, uh, I'm a lifetime yachtsman um, and I was being a sailing instructor. I've, been, I've done lots of things on boats. And uh, if somebody fails, you give them another chance. You, you, you test them until they get it right. And the story I heard the other week was about a welder who was criticizing the school system saying, here's your exam. If I'd messed up that weld and it was honeycombed, you know what the examiner would have done? They wouldn't have failed me. They got given me a grinder and said, grind it out, do it again, do it again until you get it right. And that's the way we should be educating people. The way education uh, at the moment, you know, the, well, at the moment, I mean, for, you know, for uh, Victorian times to present, school education is not adequate. And that's why a lot of people now, 70 to 80 percent of people fall into vocational qualifications because that's the way it should be taught properly. And cybersecurity is a vocational world. You know, it's a process. It's, there's not this like, if uh, I'm going to do a CIS benchmark and I want you to pick out the three things that are wrong, nobody does that, right? If you do, you're doing cybersecurity wrong. Um, it's. Uh, Education is a science, and I, I appreciate Dr. Blythe has been quite quiet. I'm, I'm not sure if he's just gone to sleep. <laughs> it's quite late for us. <laughs> I think he's love to hear from Dr. Blythe because what we've done with Merimetso was taken my 20 years of company experience, my the way I've built up um, apprentices and juniors, understand them, given them the room to grow, given them the experience with the the access to people more experienced than them to gain that experience and accelerate themselves but dr blind has is literally one of the you know ran an entire department at several universities in advanced science and we've spoken a lot and a lot of the, what we do at Miramezzo is based in pedagogy which may or may not be pronounced correctly because nobody can seem to agree on how you actually pronounce that word, which is the science of learning. And pedagogy is based in eight, it's not perfect, but no science is. So it takes uh, eight different learning types and tries to explain what those people respond to, how they retain information, what they want. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of information. And um, we do our best. So we build this knowledge of how people learn into our experience of how people succeed and what brings them along uh, to basically just say, hey, look, we've we got this company here. We've got a bunch of really, really experienced people who know what they're doing, know what they're talking about, come in and with, with like an accelerator. Let's get you out there, but not just with can you reverse engineer a DLL or can you find a flaw in a Linux kernel? Because literally nobody cares about that. Right. If you're going for a pen test job, nobody cares. So, um, what, so what you have to recognize is that there are, different, yeah, there are different types of learners out there and people learn in different ways. Some people learn academically 
via reading. Some people learn via doing. And you can argue that one of the ways that schools fail children today is that they fail to support those different types of learning. They're very much geared into the mm. old Victorian of learn by rote, learn your spellings, right? Um, learn how to do this, learn how to do maths by rote. Yeah, Andrew, Andrew can I interrupt just for a second? Because was Andrew, by the way, everyone. <laughs> Was um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I just interrupt anyway. This is Andrew's used to it. Um, interestingly, I was talking to uh, I have not been in the pub all afternoon, um, honestly, seriously, dip, 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 good boy scout. <laughs> um, I learned when I went to my first primary school, which was in North London, I had to write right handed, I'm left handed, I had to actually write right handed in a medium shaper nib with uh, a particular type of injury ink, I forget the name, I'll probably push it out of my mind now, but despite being left-handed, I had to learn to write right-handed. And that's a kind of education that is still in place. So my kids are, well, one is way, way past school age and university age, and the other is kind of going through, I don't know what the US equivalent of A-levels are. Um, it's like, school. Yeah, it's high school. High school. Yeah, yeah. High school. yeah it's, it's like you know, knocking on for 18 years old, he's getting old, old man. Um, and it's still, you can see this prevalence of this pushing down onto people. How do you learn? What do you do? I, I, I kind of get it because having been a sailing instructor, there are certain ways of doing things, and I get that, but it's kind of limiting you know it's it's just asking people to say no this is the only way of doing something so so, so, so how sorry. does that how do you guys handle uh, neurodiversity I, I know that there's so many different ways to learn right so I, I barely passed I barely graduated high school um, because I, I didn't learn the way that the school system taught in Texas um, yeah, but what I but what I realized was I learned by hands-on and I, and I learned you know, so you're a naturalistic learner. So yeah. you fall into the eighth category of the pedagogy. Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, you, know, like, you know, the, the structure. The, the, there are eight different types of learners. You are, you fall into the eighth type. That doesn't mean that you're at the bottom. It just means that you, you know, they're all parallel. You're exactly the same type of learner as a mathematical learner. You know, so you're, you're, you're the same. So you, can, so you can argue that one of the ways that, if you like, schools have failed and what's different with what Merimetso does is that what schools should be doing is not teaching people, but preparing people to learn. Oh, hell so uni university tried to get across the metal. Certainly we did when I ran a, a the forensic bit at the University of Wales. We tried to say to students, this is the beginning of your lifelong learning experience. You should never stop learning, right? You go out of here with a set of knowledge that's going to allow you to get a job, but that is the first step on the ladder, right? And, you know, you're never going to stop learning things, and it's about giving them the skills and the confidence. That's why when we taught forensics, we taught the Socratic scientific method first. Ah, no, it's interesting, Andrew, it's interesting you mentioned Socratic scientific method, which is OHCT, Observe, Collate, Hypothesize, Test. Yeah. But um, the Socratic method is actually the first from 300 years 
before current era. So what what the hell year is it now anyway? Um, you know, two two and a half thousand years ago. I don't know. I'd lose count as it goes. But um, the Socratic method was the beginning of the science of pedagogy because that's when it was first actually. And I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing that word correctly. Pedagogy, pedagogy. I don't. You know, nobody's ever given me a straight answer, and is is that the right word? But it's a record. It, it literally means the science of teaching, and there is a huge chance of it. So, oh, there's a hand up, professor. Professor, please explain to me. You know, am I wrong? Is somebody. Uh, well, so it, it it's down to the old thing. Do you do you pronounce it Linux or Linux? Oh dear God. <sighs> I've had that, I've had a more recent conversation um, not about that and I know we've had that discussion several times Andrew um, nobody cares at the end of the day because we're still discussing the same damn thing you can call it a brick or a brock it's still a brick or a brock Tom tomato tomato or tomato right exactly. I mean um, but yeah I mean it's so it's all about equipping students with the skills to learn and giving them the confidence to fail. Um, one of the things that we oh, did when so we ran the forensic course would we'd actually do casework with the students and we'd have them presenting evidence in a mock court. And you know, you'd see how long the students could stand up against professional barristers because we had judges and barristers coming in, and it gave them the ability to fail in a structured environment where they could learn from it. Um, as a scientist, I always say I learn more through failure than I do through success because failure tells me something about why something isn't working. Success just says, "Well, it works." I don't know where the line is. It could be a foot in front of me. It could be two feet in front of me. It could be a mile in front of me. Whereas failure says something about where that line is and so one of the problems that we have with science today in education is that we view failure as a negative thing and we need to change that you know so we try to go back to students when we're doing the mentoring and say it's okay to fail failure is good failure shows you're learning something but, but here, here's a question for that uh, with that same same line of thinking right so we see day after day so cybersecurity obviously is is a, is a pass or fail type in industry, right? You, you either get breached or you don't. Um, if you don't get breached, obviously you're doing something right. If you get breached, the common thought is you failed, which I think is completely wrong. I, I think I used to say to companies, it's not a question of if, it's only a question of when, when, when how much time, money, and effort someone is prepared mm -hmm. to spend, right? Exactly. Every, every system can be broken because of these warm, squashy things called humans that get in the way of things, right? You know, meat suits, meat suits. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, right? You know, we have the Black & Decker. <laughs> Take a 30 millimeter drill bit and a Black & Decker drill and, you know, somebody's kneecap and you say, what's he going to be? Your password of the kneecap. And let me tell you, at that point, I'll confess, I That's was right. the man that assassinated Kennedy. I was the man on the grassy knoll, right? So, you know, <laughs> not a question of it. So it's only a question. I'm glad you're taking the hit for me, Andrew. Yeah, well, you know, having just come back from a trip to the Galapagos to see the penguins, right? It's oh, it's fuck you. <laughs> Good work, mate. Good work. No, right? uh, so, you know, it, it's it's a matter of giving people... I, giving people I a bottle of rum. Yeah. That, I, I totally agree. So we have someone online right now, one of the co-hosts who has five master's degrees. Like, totally shocked me. Uh, Tanisha, she is an amazing student and her story about learning and, and gathering all of these degrees, like they were packs of gum in a convenience store is insane. 
Um, and I, I envy those type of learners, right? Because I have a, a type of neurodiversity that makes things a little bit more difficult to learn in a traditional setting. Um, but how do you afford five MSCs? Yeah, exactly. It's an issue. <laughs> yeah. How, how, how do you do yeah. that? I'd love to do that. <laughs> Excellent tuition uh, reimbursement benefits for my employers. Dan, yeah. you, I want to work where you work. Yeah, let's all, let's all go work for you, right? But, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's good. What it shows is what, a, what, what just, it shows. Is just what just to explain um, earlier comments. So um, I was challenged back in like 2003 or something by a very good friend of mine called uh, Steve Lord to get a certain phrase into a talk that I was giving on HMS Belfast in London. And it's just become a tradition that we do just throw random phrases at people. Paul's random phrase earlier today was Yorkshire pudding, which he got in, and Andrew managed to get Galapagos penguin, which I thought he would never get in to uh, to talk, but he managed it. Damn it! Thank you. Thank I, you. Oh, I owe you, well, rum. I owe you a bottle of rum, dude. That's so, right. That, that was really, really slickly done. Uh, I'm impressed. But what it shows is that what employers should be doing is employers should be investing in their staff and going with them and saying, your learning, your lifelong learning journey is a joint journey. It's a journey with us. And so one of the problems that you can say we have in the cybersecurity industry is we have an unwillingness of companies to invest in people's education and training, whether that's formal education, whether you talk about MSCs, or whether it's training, whether it's sending them on courses or making time for them to read a book. Right. You know, what was last time? You, you know, your employer made time for you to sit down and read a book and say, you know, yeah. you know, it, it's that's, that's time. That's the thing about uh, that's the thing about any employment is that everything you do outside of work, if you want to set a contract at nine to five, everything you do inside that time. That, OK, that's employee time. That's production. Everything you do outside of that time needs to be recognized. If you're taking the time to read books, take courses, if you pay for it, I hate it. When I find out when any employee of mine has paid for a course for themselves, just going, if I can give them a receipt, I'm paying for it. Because that's what an employer should do. Is if you're, It's all about personal development. A, a business is a business. That's fine. A business will have a universal, a unique selling point or all of those things, but they're employing you. You are one of them. And if you're reading a book that's going to increase your knowledge or your value to the business, hell yes, they should compensate you for that time they took to become more valuable and pay for the damn book. But we should, I mean, I, I should say. So it sounds, that sounds pretty good. But I mean, in, in reality, employees, employers tend to care about billable hours. You know, they tend to care about things that matter for them. You know, especially for some of my employer employers, they want to, you know, pay for a certification if there's a value to them and it's going to help them to win work or something like that. You See, know, I don't think employers necessarily who don't care. Pay, employers who don't pay for that book or that time, those employees move on. But see, so that, but that there, was a great, there was a great interview with Richard Branson 
Yes. Where the interviewer said to him, you know, why have you built, how have you built such a successful company? And he said, not by focusing on money, but by focusing on people who work for me. Because Absolutely. when the people who work for me are happy, the customers are happy. When the customers are happy, we're making lots of money and the shareholders are happy. So, he criticized uh, there's the, the, there's, there's there's a, focus on money. There's a quick question to be asked. Yes. So, so if, you, if you own a business, sorry, Mike, if you own a business, there's a, a, an, an ongoing discussion with if we train our people, they will leave. What happens if we don't train our people? They're well, they leave will anyway. stay and you've got shit people. So hey, this is true, but time. see, this is the thing. If you if, if you actually valued your employees, then you will be doing what you expect the ideal to be, which is promoting within, actually taking your your right. people who are inside that you've trained up and then and take them to the next level and train them what it is that they need to be able to do. But because of the fact that you see so often that they're hiring people from the outside and, you know, maybe some of them don't even have half of uh, half of a clue, you know, that just shows me that you're not actually caring about the, the people as much as you are about um, you know, the business and what it is that you're trying to do. So, you know, there's a difference, I think, between the lip service that a lot of folks give and actually, you know, implementing that where you're showing that you value your employees. So and I think I, for the most I, part, most folks I think, don't. I think <laughs> an interesting test and measure for companies is look at their turnover, mm -hmm. right? If you've got companies that have massive turnover, you say you're not doing it properly, right? Because staff are coming in and staff are leaving. If you've got staff that are staying and staff are happy and they're adding, you know, they're staying because they like it, most of them, right? Some of them stay because they have no choice. But anyway, you know, most of them are staying because they like it. They enjoy it, right? You know, I've, through my entire career, I've had one really simple rule about working and that is it shall be fun. And if it's not fun, I'm to make it fun. You know, so, so here's, a, here's a quick point. Here's a quick point along that line, right? So Richard, so Richard Bronson, during that same talk that you're referring to, made a comment. He said, train your people to leave your company, but yes. treat, treat yeah. them, treat them like you want them to stay. And yes, that's exactly that that's the key. That's pretty right? much it. So and, and you really don't have to like encourage people to go out and do the things that that, that they find interesting and they have a talent for. What I found as a director is if I put interest into that employee, let them know I want to know who they are as an individual, not as a not as an employee, but as a person, and give them that that you know that I'm here to help you in whatever I, way I can. But let them go and do what they want to do to improve their lives. I find they they'll do as much training as you allow them to do, um, yeah. and if you train them to leave the company, they will stay. Um, and when I left the company, I pulled up an analyst, a SOC analyst to take my director position. And that's the way it should be. If you put, if you put value in people and you focus on people and not cybersecurity, because yes, cybersecurity is important. It's an industry. We're all in it. It pays the bills. But what the most important thing is people. And if we treat people right, guess what? Those breaches will go down because you're going to have more trained people. You're going to have happier people. You're going to have people who want to be at work and who want to do their job. And the, the chances of a breach decrease dramatically. And they go the extra mile, yeah. right? You, you know, you don't get the most out of people by saying, you know, you will work Monday to Friday, nine to five. I expect you to be at your desk during that time and things like that, right? You know, 
it, it, and it, the, it, the best thing about employing a bunch of people is listening to them fucking bitch about what they don't like about the job. Yeah, but here's, here's the thing, right? That we're talking about training for cybersecurity, obviously. But those same uh, um, companies have extensive sales training. Like six months, yeah. they go on vacations and train. They shadow people. I'm just uh, amazed at the sales, sales training that they have. But uh, when you say sales, my brain translates devil in my head i'm gonna i'm gonna jump off the call now campbell if that's the case i'm gonna run away as quickly oh, as possible there's two things i was yeah, there, before i want to get out of yeah there, there were two anything. there were two things that i heard there was two things that i heard uh on here there was the there was how do we improve the capability within an organization to be more secure, which is great. Obviously, yeah. you know, how do we take a network engineer and turn them into a SOC analyst? How do we create, yeah. how do we build engineering really security capability within the development group so that, you know, the, the three security people that you have in an organization is not a bottleneck for product from a business perspective, but there's also, you know, the, the cohort of people who could be on this call, right? So, if you're if you're a consultant or you own a consultancy business or you know you have a team of people you'll have a hierarchy <laughs> of skills and experience in that group you'll have you know you'll have your three or four people at the top you'll have you know maybe six people kind of mid career or mid experience and then you'll have a couple of juniors the problem with a system where we are only focusing and this is a, this is from a business person's perspective uh, and this kind of goes to what Tanisha was saying. If we have a view as business owners of only training and investing in people because we can get immediate short-term billable hours from them, we are not having a mid to long-term view of what our business is going to look like in 24 to 36 months. And as business owners, that's a bad business owner. Um, if we do not have somebody to take over and come up the, the ladder of experience and skills as we have attrition, maybe look, somebody might leave, they, you know, they get a better offer, they move away, they unfortunately get sick and have to leave the business, they may just want to retire, and you don't have somebody to fill that role, you're not going to be able to bill out to your client and customer base at the same rate, because they will expect somebody to have the 10, 15, 20 years of experience in that space that the person before them had. So just from a business perspective and from a, you know, wanting to generate revenue for an organization, it makes perfect logical economic sense to do this investment, whether right. it is yeah. taking the time to mentor people or, you know, giving them the opportunities to learn that way you have a pipeline of talent that you can, replace the talent that leaves and they will leave right and that was my point they do yeah. that for sales like this is nothing yes. new to companies sales no 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 100 they got it they got it down to a science why doesn't it transfer over for us like what is the disconnect <laughs> there's a top line revenue li line item in an accounting's form and then there's a bottom line right so sales generate the stuff at the top of the uh, of the uh 
uh, of the income statement and everybody else is a cost on the business. And that's the, that's the culture that's created. And what we're trying to do is ignore it completely and look at how do we help people use their talent to generate top line and then just have, you know, salespeople, you know, talk a nice story. Yeah, yeah, I, I think yeah. that part of the, the issue is that when we're talking about, um, you know, how are we going to get more people to take over some of these mid-level jobs and some of the higher level positions, you know, I agree that that should be done from within. But I think the piece that's missing is, you know, we talked about education. There's a difference between what it is that we're being taught in, um, you know, cybersecurity education, um, you know, especially at like the collegiate and master's level um, and what's expected for the job. So, you know, I think that there needs to be some type of pipeline, um, you know, into, you know, basically entry level, you know, beginner um, workforce so that you're training those people. And then as you promote the people from the middle level, you know, to higher levels, then, you know, they're able to, to get to those higher levels and you have like kind of a homegrown, you know, workforce because you've provided the the ability for them to be be, be trained. You know, and Can right now, you know, you can hear me. Yeah, yeah, we can hear you, Campbell. Cool, cool. This is a massive problem. Is that people coming out of academia, coming out of the oh yeah, we've got a college degree, throw them in there, yeah. are so unequipped to actually deal with day one that. You know, we are trying to work with academia. The problem uh, is, yeah, because the, the yeah, university yeah, yeah. is un- unequipped. The, no, that's, all right, that's well, not... well, let, let me tell me about where I live. Let so I, I live. Hang on, sorry, hang on, hang on, hang on. Anisha, hang on. I, I, I would on. love you to hear the story because this is fucking brilliant. And uh, you just, Ryan, you just put on some fucking sunglasses because you know what I'm going to say. Um, I live in a university city a small university city, it's called Worcester. Not difficult to pronounce, but lots of people have problems pronouncing the name of the city that I live in. I moved here 21 years ago because London was terrible and it's quite close to Cheltenham and Hereford, which are easier to pronounce. Um, There is a massive problem with the way that we actually try to address, uh, you know, people's qualifications around us, is that um, people who have got cybersecurity degrees from Worcester or from Cheltenham or from Oxford or Cambridge or any of the other like known universities have done a cyber have done a uh, a computer secure uh, a well just fucking computing degree really and then did one module one fucking module one module about security and then the whole degree changes to oh it's a it's a cyber security degree universities are not the answer universities are really really failing on universities are money-making organisms that want to move left and right with a hey we want to yeah we're going to do this yeah we're going to... no that that's i'm going to jump in there that's not fair right if you look oh, at the, if, andrew come if, on 
if you look you, at where you are, you are the unicorn me, and the Portuguese man of war in this. No, let me but finish. Let, let me finish. Let no, me, no, the truth is, you didn't let me finish. <laughs> let me finish, right? The, the, the thing is, is that universities have come out of computing science traditionally came out of maths departments or electrical engineering departments and they had ways of teaching things and those, those, those teaching things have been copied into the way we teach computer science if you look at the way we teach doctors it's very different from the way we teach computer science and arguably there's the problem what we should be do doing is taking concepts and techniques that we use to teach doctors by exposing them to real-world problems, and we should be using the same thing for cybersecurity. So the problem is, is that we're not teaching it properly. We can, it's just that it requires universities to make a paradigm shift. And I think once, once one university makes it, lots of universities will make it. They'll look at the way that we're teaching. Mm -hmm. Right. We're still teaching with the idea of, you know, it's the way we teach Latin. It's the way we teach language. Right. You know, we have to recognize that cybersecurity is a practical hands on course and it needs to be taught by a practical hands on paradigms. Yeah, I do not disagree with anything you said. I, I agree with that. <laughs> I agree with that 100 percent. 100 percent. Yeah. I, I, so, so that's so, why mentoring is so important, right? Yeah. When they get out there, it's mentoring them. It's not, you know, sticking them in front of a computer and saying, great, you're a Java program, write me a program to do this, right? Mm -hmm. It's supporting and mentoring them and having a team family spirit. Right. But it, it's, it's not even so much as going to university, coming out and getting a job. I think that, so you're right in the sense of, you know, the way we train doctors, especially in the U.S. I mean, you're looking at six years of, of school, at maybe eight um, internship, mm -hmm. like, like a, like a resident, like a residency of some sort before you actually become, you know, like a floor doc. Right. So why don't we have the same thing with cybersecurity? Why don't we put people through four years of school and then they get a residency where they have to serve, you know, let's say six months on a job. Um, as in a residency, three fulls of school, three or four years of school is yeah, just ridiculous. You know, we're talking three or four months. Yeah, well, and and you look right, at like right. the certifications and the shotgun certifications that that make you capable, quote unquote, capable of maintaining a cybersecurity yeah, that's, that's position. Exactly the problem is a joke. Absolutely joke. I can teach somebody, somebody cybersecurity thinking mm -hmm. in five days. So I mean. If you take a look at, um, you know, what jobs are requiring, probably 80% of them want you to have a minimum of a bachelor's degree. So, I mean, I don't think it's much of a stretch for you to expect that after you go through, you know, a four-year degree, that you should at least have some kind of level of preparation for entering the job force. You know, I don't think it's uh, realistic to expect everybody to be able to, to get master's degrees or to be able to get PhDs. But even when you do, you know, that's being taught about theory as opposed to actual practice. So, you know, having an actual hands-on, um, you know, way of, of actually showing what a day in the life is looking like, what are you actually doing? How do you actually 
do the the work I think is is important but I mean it's a gap there's a gap between what the schools are teaching and then what Hmm. the jobs are expecting and I think that you know needs to be a negotiation like anything where both sides are coming a little bit towards the middle so that you know everybody's on the same page this is what we expect you to have once you come out of college and then as the industry this is what you know we're going to do to actually kind of bridge the gap you know most places have internships or apprenticeships or some type of you know, program to train people who are coming into the field new, um, you know, so how are you expecting to, to fill these 500,000, you know, jobs that are out here that are open, you know, where they say that there's no unemployment and cybersecurity, if you're not actually allowing for an entry-level workforce, you so know, that, there has to be something what, that's done. That's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. And the, the, the problem is, is this right here. It's money. Everything, money. every issue that, that we're talking about right now, it has become a money issue, right? So why does a company want somebody, uh, entry-level analyst with, with all these qualifications? Because it saves them money. They can spread that talent across five different roles and pay for one. Um, yeah, and, so the, and so we've the, allowed that. So, we've allowed yeah. that to happen. But, it, but it's the way so, it's taught, right? I mean, you, can, you know, it's not a matter of what you know. It's a matter of how you learn to apply it. So, you know, you can have someone coming out with a bachelor's degree, but if that person has been taught the way we teach medicine, very hands-on, very practical, a lot of working on real-world examples, that person comes into the workforce and is able to hit the ground from day one. Why? Because they've been working on real problems, solving real solutions, as opposed to someone who's been working on test solutions in the classroom and has never had to do real world programming in, in the real world. So it's the way we teach things. You know, you can argue that there isn't enough mentoring going on and it's not until students come in and are employed that they start to get anywhere near mentoring. But the problem there is a lot of people basically say, from day one, I want you earning money, right? Yeah. From day one, mm-hmm. you have to be making enough money to pay your salary. And you can argue that's the problem, that companies should be investing and should have investment programs. So when someone comes in, they say, for the first six months, we don't expect you to do any billable hours, right? We want you to learn. We want to mentor you in our processes and things like that. And you're right when you say from a commercial point of view, it's become all about money. It is. It's really sad. So Tanisha has has a, a very unique perspective when it comes to cybersecurity, right? So like not only does she have five master's degrees, like, which is totally insane to me, um, but also she runs a mentoring program. Tanisha, wh- why don't you tell them a little bit about the mentoring program that, that you started up to help people to get into that, that analyst role without having that 20 years of, of experience and five certifications. Why don't you explain a little bit about how your group uh, does that and, and we'll go from there. Yeah, so um, Black Girls Hack, um, it was created specifically to try to address this problem, you know, where we are open to everyone, um, you know, not just Black women, but um, there's definitely a gap. There's, you know, a difference between what it is that you're learning in the schools and what you need to be able to get into the workforce. So we're trying to provide um, training, um, mentoring, resume review, um, you know, like mock interviews, basically anything that will pro- allow people to be able to get into the workforce. Um, a lot of people have, for example, like transferable skills that they can use to be able to, you know, get into cybersecurity, but they think that because of the fact that they don't have, 
you know, specifically cybersecurity labeled jobs that they're not able to. But, you know, as we see like for, in fields like uh, social engineering and some of the, the other things within cybersecurity that are not necessarily like technical, you know, we definitely need diversity in thought and diversity in experience and um, diversity in education. So, you know, we are trying to provide um, the squad, that, that's the members of the organization um, with mentoring so that they can, you know, be able to ask people um, you know, what it is as a day that a life, a day in a life looks like for, um, you know, specific types of jobs and then also providing them exposure. So we do a, um, a bring a hacker to work day on Sundays where we just have people come and speak about what a job looks like with a, a particular topic so that we can actually have people be able to say, you know, this is what it looks like if you're a reverse engineer or a malware, you know, hunter or what, whatever it is that you're, you're doing in in um, cybersecurity so that you can actually know, you know, what that looks like and what to expect. Because, you know, I think that once we get people into the field, you know, which is great, we also want to make sure that they're staying in the field. And I think retention is another issue that, you know, we need to address at some point, you know, because we don't have a lot of diversity. You know, if you look at some of the conferences, look at, you know, Hacker Summer Camp going on this 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 uh, couple of months, you know, you'll see that most of the people there are, you know, older white men. You know, so we want to try to see some of the diversity that are going into algorithm development that are going into some of these systems, you know, especially when, you know, they're trying to connect anything and everything um, so that we can, you know, be able to have more, you know, diversity in some of the systems and not as much bias because um, so many algorithms are used to um, to decide so many things such as justice and healthcare. So, you know, we kind of need um, to get more diversity, more difference in um, in those in those fields. But I think the way you do that is you engage kids when they're in school. I'm of a generation where my first computer was a ZX81, so you can now figure out how old I am, right? You know, 6502 six processor, right? None of this graphical rubbish that kids want today. Command line, I'm proud, right? And, but it made me interested. And you, you had them at school, and I wanted to know how they work. The problem now is that is it's getting kids when they're young and they're interested to say, hey, robotics is fun. Look at what you can do. Computing is fun. Look at what you can do. And they take that with them. And then when they want to go on and do a degree, the universities will take them on. I remember talking to some of the people in the government here when they were going on about a skill shortage and saying to them, the problem is not with the universities, right? All those people applying to do computer science degrees are getting to do computer science degrees. The problem, if you want more computer scientists, is you have to go back and look at 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, eight-year-olds and say, why aren't more of those kids applying to do computer science? Why are they applying to do media studies? music technology right you know what's making them do that those are the kids and we need to recognize that we, the problem's probably going to take five or six years to solve if we start thinking about it now there is no silver bullet no magic switch you can turn on to say Ta-da, problem solved we can all go home and live happily ever after it's going to take many years and that's part of the problem i think because a lot of the politicians and things like that they're not prepared to think 10 years down the road I think it's because they're also treating cybersecurity like every other industry. It's, a, it's that the industry and the people who are running it at the moment are, are not treating it as the adaptive, you know, as adaptive as it should be. I know you want to say something, Mike, get in there. You've got a chance. Go, go. <laughs> yeah, so, so it's, it's not so much as the way the industry is moving and, and the mentorship. And it, yes, those are all gaps, right? But the big problem, and it, we're not going to solve this problem by any means, on this call um, 
But the biggest problem is when the government looks at hackers as the boogeyman and everything is, is this veiled threat where, oh my God, you know, we've got ransomware, the pipeline, this, that, and the other. When, you know, they're making that boogeyman, it's like post 9-11, right? So in the US, everybody who was Middle Eastern or Muslim became a target, right? So now you look at cybersecurity professionals and security researchers, and we get put on lists across the country. Um, because if you know too much about, you know, computer security or cybersecurity or, or hacking, obviously in the US, you're a threat. Um, and that's one thing we're battling here is that, that view from the government as, you know, these people are skilled, um, they're the skilled. Movie, Go ahead. The, move, the movie War Games has yes. an awful lot to answer for. Right, you know, yeah. yes, it, yes, yeah, yeah, thermal global nuclear war, right? You know, but that's the problem. I mean, it, I mean, it launched a thousand hackers, but at the same time, it presented a stereo image of you know the bad person out there, right? You know, and and so you have this thing about you know, oh, if you're a hacker, you're bad. Right? Who is that? Who is that I, hacker? That hacker was a kid, a teenager, right? Yeah. But it's so, also. If you look at the word hacker, the word hacker actually came out of MIT in the 1960s. Right. And it right. was about yeah. people who played around with technology to get them to do things. That's right. And it was actually a very positive word, mm -hmm. you know, was viewed with like a badge of honor, like, hey, you're doing all this stuff. Now it has a negative connotation. And that's the problem, right? We need to change, you know, we need to somehow figure out how we can change the connotation of the word and have it back as a more a positive thing, contributing to society rather than that kind of, you know, 15 year old kid that wants to bring about the end of the world. Right. So, so take a look at the, um, like the media portrayal, you know, you, you don't see any like movies or TV shows about good hackers, you know, like all of the things that you see as far as movies or TVs or, you know, some of our, you know, iconic, um, hacker movies, you know, none of it is positive. You don't actually have people who are actually trying to protect, you know, the environment, so strengthen them or keep people out. You know, you don't see, for example, like, you know, the sock, analyst um tv show you know you see the people who are trying to break in because that's glorified and glamorous so psi cyber was terrible let's be honest right they should have been that after the first episode and you know you're doing too much for editors where on csi cyber they were using a ufed cell bright device and you know you're doing too much when you're looking at the show going it's wired in the wrong way round. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to agree with Professor Roger on this one. Um, yeah, I think Hackers got a great uh, media portrayal when Angelina Jolie played one in Hackers. I think that was a, a beneficial, <laughs> a beneficial move. Um, but you're right. But you're absolutely right, Tanisha. So, what about the guy who went out to create malware to remove the Eternal Blue and, and some of the other malware? What happened to him? He got he got off of a plane and automatically arrested by the FBI when he was trying to help the situation. So, so, so here, here's, here's, here's the conundrum that, that, that I'm looking at, right? So the FBI just recently logged into servers without people knowing to remove malware, right? Without permission, obviously, but they did it anyways to That's help. Good. Mm. But they did it to help. So, I mean, for the past, I guess, three years when I was in Europe and in London. Um, my father, that though, arrested. Yeah. Breaking service, you're rid of malware. Yeah, oh, I'm going to fail. Yeah. So my last two years in London was spent talking to kids and, and talking to companies on, you know, what the true meaning of hacker is and the innovation and the motivation that we have today in technology. We wouldn't have SpaceX. We wouldn't have 
uh, we wouldn't have Mac computers. We wouldn't have the internet had it not been for hackers or back then crackers from MIT or you know from the old days to create this technology. But somehow from the point where we created the internet, when, when DARPA produced the internet, released it to the public, from some point, from that point on, we've gone from the internet's a good thing and we're here to help everybody modernize everything and communicate to the internet's a bad thing, it's a scary place and don't worry about it because the government, we the government will protect you. And that, so that's, that's what we face here. Over overseas, it's not so much. Um, living there, yeah, we heard about all the gruesome uh, attacks and, and ransomware, but the government takes a different stance over there. And I appreciate that about the UK. Um, when it came to the kids who were identified as cyber criminals, they didn't automatically throw them in a cage and make them a true black hat or make them a person who is a threat. Um, they gave them a second chance. And I think that, that as an industry, we're failing completely at that because back in the day when I first got into IT, um, it was really like Tanisha said, it was really the old white man with you know, the long beard, long hair, the Unix admin eating Cheetos at his desk, right? That didn't want to share any of his secrets because if he, if he told you how he did his job, he was afraid he was going to lose his job. And so that's what we face now is that it, we're still seeing remnants of that. People, people afraid to share knowledge because they don't want that person to move one step up the ladder ahead of them. Um, but it's getting to the point where the government's stepping in, and especially in the U.S., uh, when we've had so many major things compromised, supposedly, then the government steps in and says, okay, you can't do the job, so we're going to do it for you. And you're going to have to meet these compliances. You're going to have to pay these fines. And this is what the lowest level of analysts that you can have. This is their qualifications. So when I was doing DOD contracting, when I contacted one of the recruiters, they said, you have to have a combination of three certs. Those certs, one being, and this is, this is concrete, you can't waver from this, you have to have a CEH, trash, fuck that, threw it out the window. Next one, they said, you have to have a SANS cert. Or really, which SANS? You know, which GX cert do you want me to have? There's like 50, and they're all shit. But you had to have one of those. And then the third one was anything you wanted. And I was like, hmm, okay, so I could go out and get like, I don't know, a cooking degree and, and that would be good. Um, but really, they, they had a low level, a low bar of what they expected people to come in at, which, you know, if, if we could move that same idea into commercial, we'd be successful because the government just wants people to press buttons. And it's a matter of creating an ecosystem. If yes. you look at what the Israelis have done, you know, what they've done is they've taken their hackers that you have to do military service. They put them in a hacking unit within the Israeli government. They train them. And then when they go out, they're picked up by companies. And it's a matter of creating a viable ecosystem for talent coming in so it can be developed. Exactly. And, and, and the, the military does a great job at that. Um, <laughs> I, I was in the military. I was a cryptologist in the military for you know, a number of years before I came out and got in trouble. Um, but it, it all goes back to, you know, the, the government is probably one of the only institutions that trains their cyber warriors with enough, I guess, technical knowledge and experience where they can leave the military service and actually jump right into, you know, one of the, the fastest paced socks. But we don't have that. We don't have that for academia. We don't have that for people like me who really, 
I would have failed college. I, I don't know if I would have, I would have gotten a degree because I'm not that type of learner. So we're excluding the 90% of our industry who are already here. Um, and when I say 90%, I'm talking about pen testers, right? So 90% of us pen testers are on the spectrum somewhere. Um, and that's from my data that I've collected over the past years, talking to you know, leaders in the industry, talking to people I bring on teams, 90% of our industry is neurodiverse. And why are we not training people and teaching people with that method of teaching that they can understand? But we don't do that. And even the, the certificates, the certification courses are such bullshit. Five days, you sit in a class, eight hours a day, you take a test. What happens if you're a bad test taker, but you know all the information? Yeah. What if, what if you get anxious I, and you fail a test? It's bullshit. I think that the military happens. approaches it much in the same way as like the residency. You know, they actually, you know, you do your ASVAB or you do like whatever your aptitude test is, you get put into your industry and then, you know, they teach you what it is that you need to know. And, you know, it's basically trial by fire. You're actually given the opportunity, you know, once you get in there to, to actually learn what it is that you need to know. Right. And that's the, the kind of the model that we were talking about as far as like the industry needs to adopt as far as, you know, people, you know, so that they, they'll get the, the skills that they need. But I definitely agree that that, you know, an approach that works because, you know, a lot of the people that we see that are, that are, you know, thriving out here are coming from the, the military, you know, because they got a wide range of skill sets in a lot of different areas. Right. But it wasn't like, you know, you passed a test or you were able to, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, Hey, you you're put in there and you're going to do this or you have to leave the military. Right. And I mean, that there is a trial by fire um, when it comes to military. Uh, when I got into the CTN rate, which is crypto tech networking attack and defend. Right. So I was part of the attack function. Um, there was no class for it. So we had to like write our own SOPs or whatever. But so there is a trial by fire level in the military, but they do allow you to fail. Um, and yeah. to me, to me, failure, to me, failure is, is a natural progression, right? I, I wouldn't have learned the things that I've learned hacking had I not thrown an exploit out there that didn't fucking work um, and have to go back and recode it. You have to learn from that stuff. Look at how um, babies learn, right? Yes. You know, a baby learns that something is hot by touching it and going, that's hot. I don't want to do that. Failure is part of our natural evolutionary learning process. And we need to view failure as not being negative, but being a positive you know, I mean, you know, you, everyone should be allowed to make, you know, you can make a mistake, just don't make it twice. But as an, as an industry, we don't do that. As an industry, we say we cannot fail at all. We cannot allow a breach because then our whole security group has failed. The companies failed. They get black eyed in the, in the public, in the media. And that, that's wrong. You know, we fight this together and it's not a company versus a company. It's an industry, right? And if we want a better shit, we have to really buckle down. I mean, when I, when I do a sample of the internet and find that we have MS Blaster running wild on the open internet, that's a fucking problem. You know, are, are we that bad at what we do that we can't stop shit like that from 1995 or, or from 2000? Like, it, it, it's ridiculous. But it's because that, that whole idea, that mentality of you cannot fail. And I've heard so many times, red teamers only have to be right one time but sock and blue team has to be right all the time that's bullshit utter bullshit yeah, that's, that's they're they're able to fail and they should fail because if you don't fail you don't succeed so that, you that's learn. you don't learn right yeah. i mean yeah. you know there are these things called zero days 
Brighton, you know, I mean, good luck defending against the zero day. Right? Someone, it's all about money and effort and how much someone's prepared to put in to get into your network. But there's a new one. It's not just zero day. There's a pre-zero day <laughs> classification out. And it blew my mind when they were explaining it to me. I was like, excuse me, come again. What the fuck are you talking about? So a zero day to these people is something that's out in the wild already. To me, that's not a zero day. But to them, this pre-zero day is an exploit that hasn't been released, but is known to be in possession. It's just, it's, as an industry, we come up with some really hokey shit and yeah. people buy it. Well, it's like, a, it's right. like APT. Right, you know, APT, advanced persistent threat. You've got to mitigate all APTs, right? You know, and you're like, I don't know, it's just a sales term, right? You know, it was it was an excuse for a lot of companies to go around labeling their stuff as we did we we defend against APTs to sell shit. Mm, yeah. And we, we classify we classify these APT groups based on the country they're from, the governments that back them. Um, what I find really funny about the U.S. and uh, you know I'm going to put this on audio and have it recorded is the fact that <laughs> we we are an APT. I mean, we yeah. did Iran. We we Mid-time. helped we helped Israel. Mid level APT. Yeah, we we, we, <laughs> jacked, we jacked up Iran and we complained about people attacking our infrastructure. I mean, we've done it since the beginning of time. I mean, our CIA has overthrown governments and caused coups. You know, and we are an APT. Yeah. We were trained, we train our military personnel to be APT when it comes to cyber war. Um, so and, it's yeah, kind I mean, of us. And from yeah. a, a university, um, you know, I, I, I worked in, uni- I worked, I work in universities and the problem with cybersecurity is they don't clearly know what we are. Are we an engineer? No. Are we a, a doctor, like a doctor, lawyer? No. Are we a, a magician? No. Yeah. yeah. Are we are we electrician? They don't know what to do with us. So they they really have no way of of putting a, a lesson plan or curriculum together that will be effective because they don't know who we are. Yeah, magician. Mm-hmm. Right. How do you teach a magician? I think that need for classification is part of the problem, because if you look at cyber um, at computer science education, you know, cybersecurity is not, you know, typically built in, you know, it's usually like some additional, you know, electives yes. or something like that. But when, yeah. when in reality, you know, it should be more of some blurred lines between computer science and, and, and cybersecurity, because mm-hmm. really, it's not possible for you to teach computer science effectively for us to actually have, you know, secure coding practices, you know, when we're not actually teaching the, pe- the developers, you know, security, you know, and, and it's oftentimes taught as a different subject or a different, you know, an elective, as opposed to something that's mandatory and should be included in everything we're, we're doing. It's a, it's a different language. People don't understand it, right? So there's a reason why we call our programming and, and our code languages, because it's shit nobody else can decipher and understand. Um, and, and it's the same thing with schools, right? And I've, I've experienced that, you know, going in and talking to some of the universities in the UK um, when it comes to cyber law, and they didn't even know what the CMA was. So when you deal with, with, with that level of incompetence and you're relying on that level to train your next generation of cybersecurity, you know, defenders, it's a failure situation. Um, and it, it goes back to, I think not only the organization, but also the fact that 
you know, there's not enough outreach programs. There's not enough programs out there to help kids really get focused, right? And really look at um, cybersecurity. So they have a lot of engineering. My, my son went to a school and in, in high school, they took engineering, they took robotics, but you know, there wasn't one computer course that focused on cybersecurity. And I asked him, I said, are, are you interested in that? Of course he is, but they don't offer it. They offer robotics and engineering. I mean, what the fuck? The, the whole world's based on computers. Why not have a cybersecurity program? Um, but that, that's, that's a battle that, that I think is going to take some time because we have our own issues in the U.S. when it comes to school. Um, they're trying to push agendas to schools right now, and it's become more of a, uh, a state-sponsored. Um, yeah, po politics, right? Bush yeah. started that with the No Child Left Behind. Yeah, now we have a, completely new initiatives that make no fucking sense. Um, here, in, here, in, here in the UK, they've had some success teaching cybersecurity in schools aimed at 11 to 18 year olds, but they don't talk, they don't use the word cybersecurity, mm -hmm. right? They, they talk about, you know, privacy on the internet and protecting oh, your personal space on the internet and identifying bad behavior on the internet. And all of these things relate to cybersecurity. And they are having, they are starting to have some success about making kids aware about things that go on and introducing them into, you know, you are an active participant in the internet. You need to be able to protect your space and, you know, to understand when, when people are doing things bad, but they're not using the word cybersecurity because it has a particular connotation. I, I told yeah, you. <laughs> Yeah, I think that it also. I'm sorry, Ryan. Uh, it's a good go. Yeah. Oh, you know, I was going to say that I think it also comes down to money um, because, you know, a lot of times school systems are trying to focus on, you know, uh, uh, you know, basically passing like normal language, you know, normal um, courses, you know, just basic education that, you know, they don't have the funds to bring in things like cybersecurity or computers. Like I, I, I'm a product of DC public schools and, you know, we didn't have, you know, computer school um, classes. We didn't have, you know, definitely didn't have computer science at the time. Like I did my, my uh, college applications on a typewriter, but, you know, there was no, you know, concepts of those type of things. So depending on what the school system, and, and I think it comes down to money, whether or not they're offering, you know, courses that are outside of traditional curriculums. I think the problem here is a lot of the schools work on, and the same with universities, they work on league tables. You know, so the unit, what, what, the, what the schools are interested in is working their way up the league tables and getting good league results. You know, not about the quality of people that are walking out the door, but how many A's did your students get at A level, right? You know, what was your, what was your GPO? right you know in america and things like that they're not in all they're interested in is these numbers not the quality of students walking out the door did you produce a rounded individual we don't care about that right what we care about is did they get three a's at a level yes well that's good well not necessarily you know it, it, it's down to are you measuring the right thing and arguably you know a lot of schools aren't and you know because because of these league tables and it, that, there we go yeah, I, I totally well, that's, agree. In, that's incumbent on business as well, right? So business and government have to... We, so in business and in government, we put weight on certification because it gives us a guidepost for the skills of that person. We know what, they've been, what they should have been taught under that certi certificate. So the, the, uh, in order for the students and the academic and the educational space to be able to give people those certificates, they have to measure certain things. And unfortunately, um, 
cybersecurity, unlike some of the other, and I'm just going to use a broad term, the other information technology or risk disciplines, um, the skills are learned by doing, right? They're learned by failing and breaking and, and just getting your hands dirty. Uh, and uh, Michael um, mentioned something earlier on. He, there was a question, there was a comment in the, um, in the, in the thread, is cybersecurity too much of a generic term? I think it is right. So, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, it was one thing, right? <laughs> it was electronic engineering and a little bit of programming in, in, you know, punch cards. Now it is 50 different things. And I think from a cybersecurity perspective, we, we have a broad brush term called cybersecurity, which means really 40 or 50 different things, but our industry isn't mature enough to have that breakdown of discussion and people who are not in the industry to understand what that is. They understand networking, people understand programming, they understand how to make an app. They know that it's different from um, you know, doing Word documents and they understand it's different from giving a password, but within cyber, the broader educational system and the broader uh, community, the, they only see cybersecurity as people trying to break stuff and hack stuff and steal stuff. They don't understand the nuance about risk and governance and, and awareness and education and defense and attack and blue team and red team. That, that, that doesn't make sense to them because they don't know yet. So it's incumbent upon us not to be talking about cybersecurity as cybersecurity, but really be breaking it down into much smaller manageable chunks and say, okay, instead of, instead of certifying somebody is a cybersecurity professional, you know, because they have a MSc in cyber or they have a PhD, why don't we micro uh, certify people that they know how to do SQL injection? You're very right. good at SQL injection. It is a skill that you have learned. It didn't take long, but you're really good at it now. Or, you know, uh, uh, like Mike. malware reverse engineering, you become an expert in that space, right? And then over time, you build up your portfolio of skills so that you can go and say, I all of these skills combined is the same as somebody who's gone through four years of a bachelor's degree and then another 18 months or two years of a master's degree, right? So if they then choose in 10 or 15 years of having a career to get into academia, they can go to a university and they can say, I want to do a PhD in cryptography in this space. And they go, show me your body of work. Here's your body of work. That's Come exactly and how think you add value. Sorry, Ryan? This is one thing that's left out of the conversation, how cyber criminal works. Like, that's the point of this industry, yeah? To fight that, like, I can't go to the university, I'm like a degree in cybercrime, Baggy. You, you find one topic, you become an expert in that. And that's, this is, I think, Paul, you've got a really good point there, the learning one bit at a time. Like, cybersecurity, something's new every day. Like, yeah. Well, not only that, but, but we need to get journalists that are involved in the industry, and they need to come up with a new career plan that's called, like, uh, cybersecurity journalism to where they report the stories and the details on the breaches in an accurate fucking way. So it doesn't like spin up a bunch of fear. You know, when, when the colonial pipeline got hit, the first thing my mom said was, oh, I'm scared. I haven't been on the internet. What the fuck? It, it was a pipeline. Who cares? You know, it just, you know, we need people to accurately depict what we do in our industry. And I think that's one of the major problems we have is that we don't have anybody speaking out about, the accuracy and what we do on a day-to-day -day basis to the rest of the general public. So all they see, and this is, I mean, this is human nature, right? So what do we do with, with shit that we don't understand? 
we label it, right? We, 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 we label it, right? So, you know, Native Americans, when thunder, thunder happened, they thought it was a big fucking bird, right? Um, we see shit in the sky and, oh, you know, it must be a UFO. Uh, so they do the same thing with us, you know, they for yourself. Our, yeah, they yeah, look it's, at our, it's sensationalized, though. You know, yeah, I think yeah. that's the point yeah. of media. It's not necessarily, you know, a lot of people are not actually looking for the facts. They're looking to, you know, kind of give you the highlights to mm-hmm. either create some kind of emotion, you know, not so much. Let me tell you exactly what happened and let you, you know, figure out what it means for your life and for society. But they tell you what it is that you should be thinking, depending on right. you know which side of the spectrum news yeah. that you're watching will get the spin you know, what and, spin you're actually getting. And they should, they shouldn't, they should, they should report it. They should report it. But that's the 24 hour news cycle. Yes. Right? It's always, you know, sensationalized, 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 because we want to keep people on screen, mm-hmm. you know, so gone are the days of picking up a newspaper and reading a thought piece on a problem, you know, now it's, it's just, and, and fear sells. And so, you know, certainly in the UK, we see a lot of on the news, a lot of the stories are what I would describe as negative. You know, they're fear-based. You never have a good story, you know, hey, somebody did this, right? You, you know, occasionally you might get one, right? Yeah. But it's all about, you know, fear because fear sells. Fear sells. Yeah, it, absolutely. And people... It worked, it worked for Bush. Yeah. And people in general in the US, yeah, I, I would say, I would, I would venture to say at least 80% of the people who watch the news will buy whatever they say on TV. It doesn't matter what the data is or if there's argue, arguable facts on both sides, they will listen and buy anything that, that's being said on the television. And Tanisha, you, you and I both know that the government, the U.S. government, especially after 9-11, that was the biggest fear-mongering incident ever. And so what did they do? They turned the fear, the fear machine on. And then everybody who was walking down the street who possibly had, you know, a turban on or who was praying five times a day automatically became the devil. Um, and they're doing the same thing with, with hackers. They're doing the same thing with our industry. They're highlighting the fact that our industry is so fucked up and shit gets breached all the time. People lose their, their personal information, but they're not, do- they're not relaying the information in a way that's accurate, in a way that, you know, gives people a, a better feel like, hey, we have people who are working on this. This is what we're doing to solve this problem and opening up the industry for, for outside inventors to help out. That's the way it should be. But we're not doing that as an industry. We're saying, oh, that company fucked up. And this is why team viewer, big mistake, whatever. And we give them a black eye. We push them into a corner. We make, make them pay fines and potentially lose their business. So we need accurate reporting. We need somebody from the industry. Like when Trump had the czar, and Krebs was, I mean, he was fantastic. And when he reported the way that it was supposed to be reported, and he said that there was no manipulation to the vote, what happened to him? He got fired. So, you know, accuracy and telling the truth and not spinning people up is not something they want. But that's what we're fighting against as an industry. It's not just the U.S., it's global. Um, but take, and- a, take a look. Um, this week, there was an, a, an attack on um, a, a meat factory. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, JBS. immediately people said, you know, hey, you know, we're not going to have any more beef. We're not going to have any more pork. You know, everybody needs to basically run out the grocery stores because, you know, just the same way that they cut off gas. You know, in the southeast based on the last you know there's not going to be any need so i mean it's it's driving consumerism so you know not to mention the fact that it's meant to skew people in one direction versus the other you know mm-hmm. so like i mean there are motives behind it there are people you know who have interests outside of just reporting the news it's not like they're doing it for the you know integrity mm-hmm. i mean a lot of people have motives in terms of like driving you know people to another company consumer 
to right. buy things, you know? We like create, if you look at we some create, of the biggest... We create a self-fulfilling prophecy. We had it in the UK with the beginning of COVID, even though all the supermarkets were standing up and saying, there's nothing wrong with the food chain. You have nothing to fear about. Because somebody started this running down and buying pasta, suddenly everyone was running into the shop. They created a food shortage, not because there was a food shortage, but they created this, this, this self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, right? there, there, was, there was more deaths in Waltham Abbey and Essex in a Tesco parking lot than I'm sure there was in all of Essex from, from COVID because everybody was lined up to get toilet paper. Toilet paper. We create our own shortages and we're doing that with cybersecurity professionals as well. We're creating our own fucking shortage. So um, Andrew, is the, uh, the, the depiction of hackers and cybersecurity professionals the same in the UK? Like, in Australia, we get kind of a fairly positive light shot on us. Like the, jet, like the general populace don't think of they're kind of maturing what their view of a hacker is like in the u.s i i was pretty clear that you guys think we're the boogeyman but uh what's it like in the uk uh, we're similar to the u.s right i wouldn't say it was as bad as the u.s but certainly you know there's a strong negative light um it, it's changed a little bit because under gdpr companies now have to report breaches so um, we've gone from you know breaches being seen as as negative. They still are, but companies are kind of you know because companies are forced to report them. Um, it's become more of a I wouldn't say accepted. That's kind of the wrong word, but more of a thing of like shit happens. Yeah. Right. You know. You know. And and it's it's just part of life. Right. You know. You know. Somebody suffered a data breach because somebody did something stupid. Um, you know. And you're like. Yeah, okay. You know, I mean, I mean, it was like Microsoft and Tiananmen Square, right? You know, on the day of the remembrance, if you click Tankman on Microsoft Bing, it came up with no such thing. And Microsoft said, yeah, that's a user error. And you go, yeah, right. I believe you, right? You know, market speed. So yeah. you know, it, it's, it's become, people have almost become numb to it. Right. I mean, you know, when I was at the university, we did a disk study and we found all this data. And the first year that we did a disk study, everyone was like, oh, my God, there's all this personal data out there. And we did the disk study for five years. And at the end of year five, people were going, yeah, you found shit on disks. So what? You know, people are becoming numb to it. Yeah. Um, and they, they do that. They, they desensitize. So the media and the government, especially in the U.S., desensitize people to certain events. Um, and to be honest with you, I, I've been following the progression of the attacks since late last year. And the media is just jumping all over that shit. And so is the government and predicting this, predicting that. And it's funny because I, I've been looking at the chain of events and I've been predicting what's going to happen next. But I don't think it's because I know the attacker. I think it's because I know our government and I know how they convey information. And when they desensitize and they enter into, I guess, the public eye, another type of attack that they're not used to seeing, they play it up. And so the yeah. next attack. What frightens government is there was a famous paper written called Three Meals to Midnight. And yes. it was written by an American colonel where he basically said, you know, you take away, you starve people for 24 hours and you've got riots on the, on the street. You've got people coming out. You've got problems. And, you know, ultimately it's politicians protect i mean we talk about you know the government should protect civilians and things like that but you know they want to protect their own jobs yeah right? well and they're not into they're not in the business of protecting people here um and to be honest with you like 
yeah, they, they say they're protecting and they're, they're doing this and doing that, but really all they're doing is raising a red flag. Um, and yeah. it, it's shit that they've been doing forever. I mean, we've been doing the same type of attacks to other countries and, and to, you know, major uh, regimes, but when it happens to us, it's like the boogeyman and we got to like shut everything down and it's misconveyed. And the problem is we're having the government dictate cyber law and the actual compliance and, and they're getting too involved in the industry. You don't see, you know, the, the U S government getting involved in the medical industry as much as they used to. You don't see them getting involved in automotive and transportation. It's all about cyber right now. And they want, I, I think it was Obama actually who, was talking about taking control of the internet and providing a internet ID for every citizen. And that's the way you function on the internet. And that's the, that's the utopia that, that the government wants to get to is that they control that. Um, because if they control that, they control commerce, they control social aspects of the US and the world. And that's yeah. what they want. They, they want that power. It's called China. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Right, and I, I mean, you know, there was a, there's a really interesting panorama program on AI and, and um, you know, the rise of AI in China for controlling people and the level of control you can achieve. And it's really quite scary. It is. Um, and they were, using, they were using drones during the pandemic to tell people to go back into their homes. Um, and I, I mean, that's, that's where we're heading if as an industry, we don't stand up and, and try to stop that, that progression. And I don't know if that's possible. You know, I did a talk called 1984 and I talked about how the, the novel um, laid out the framework for what we have now, but we've superseded 1984 by far, um, you know, and we're getting to a point where that whole thought police, the, you know, looking at your searches on the internet, um, you know, they, they, they tag each person. And to say that, that China has a dossier on every citizen in our country is accurate, but at the same token, so does our so is our own government. Our own government has a dossier on everybody. Um, so, I mean, really, my point is that I think the government is getting too involved in our industry. And as an industry, we need to take care of ourselves and then open it up to the government. But the government drives so much of what we do as far as compliance and defense goes. It's insane. And I've been in the industry for, for over 20 years. Um, and so we try to bring people into the Haunted Hacker to help co-host and, and people who don't have that amount of time to give them that experience. And one of the things that I tell people that if they don't want to go to school, they don't want to get a certification, start researching, start publishing your, your findings and continuously do that because really you don't need a degree to do this job. Um, Curiosity, capacity and passion and passion. And if you have those two things and you do research, you can put that into a portfolio and present it to you know, a company, and they'll buy that before they'll buy a CEH certificate. Um, and I think that's the most important. So, you know, with that, I'm going to open up the floor for questions. Um, I want to ask Gabriel to, if he has any questions, first off, Gabe, Gabe is one of our new guys from the UK. Um, he's been with us for a bit, but he's one of our new co-hosts. And I want to give him a chance to ask you guys any questions that he may have, and we'll just move down the line and go from there. Yeah, sorry I haven't been speaking, mate. Uh, a lot of topics going fast. I just couldn't really keep up. Um, so, yeah, you guys have, I noticed you have the check scheme and more specifically uh, CSTM, I believe. Um, in my experience, yeah. yeah, in my experience, that's not exactly the most entry-level certification. Usually you get that about a year or two in. So how do you introduce uh, beginners, people without experience, that level of uh, 
training. So, so in in the UK, there's two levels: Czech team leader and Czech team member. Yeah. Czech team member is designed to be the entry level that most people will go into. There's an expectation at Czech team member level that most people are at degree. I don't I wouldn't say have a degree, but have degree level knowledge. So, you know, if if you're wanting to be a pen tester, you've got the background in networking. You've got the background in programming and how systems work and things like that and you've really got a set of problem solving skills right so when I used to teach forensics as you say it's all about problem solving and it's the same thing with check team member there are a number of courses you can go out on there run by so Merimetso we run a course for check team member where we take the students through introduce them to networking get them doing some basic stuff to sit an assessment that then gets you on a check team member um, check team members are very very employable I had a, a former student of mine sat at a Czech team member exam. He posted on LinkedIn and within four hours, he'd had five job offers. Um, but it's the Czech team member is the entry point. The idea then is that you go and spend three or four years, you know, actually being a pen tester and living and eating this shit. And then you're ready to do the Czech team leader exam. And the Czech team leader exam, I used to be a Czech team leader examiner at a university, uh, is six hours of hell, right? <laughs> It yeah, is hard. Crest uh, and like things like CCT is uh, very hard. My my current team leader is about to do his CCTM. The pass rate's forty percent, roughly. Right? Yeah, um, there used to be know. like only two hundred in the UK before NCC got involved, and I'm I'm not even going to go there because that's a whole uh, can of worms. Yeah, I mean, you you can turn around and say that you know the market has been somewhat manipulated to keep the number of check team leaders down, so companies can charge a premium for them. Um, you know. It, it should be competency-based. Um, you know, some of the assessments are broken, in my opinion, as an academic with 20 years' experience because, we, you know, we're not examining capabilities and competencies of students in particular areas. And the numbers of check, the number of check team leaders we have should be in irrelevance, right? You know, we shouldn't try and cap it in any way. Um, it's about are you competent and capable to do, to do the job? Can you lead a team? Um, you know, there are a lot more check team members out there, Um but I mean, you know, I mean, I used to say to some of my students, I used to, I used to train students to, to be pen testers is that, you know, a lot of them used to say after five years, they were bored. You know, what, let's face it, once you've seen one SQL injection, you've kind of seen them all, you know, and once you've seen one remote buffer overflow, yeah, okay, you know, same-o, same-o type of thing. Um, it can become very boring, so they tend to move on to do other things. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's... A check team member is a good starting point. Um, anyone who's wanting to get into the industry, I would suggest that you need to look at some kind of training or mentoring program to get you up to a level to do it. The assessments are not hard um, if you understand your stuff. Um, you know, but if you don't understand how a network works, then you are going to struggle. If you don't understand how to identify certain types of vulnerabilities and exploit those vulnerabilities, you are going to have a problem. But luckily with the internet, there's a lot of training material out there. So it doesn't have to be courses. There's lots of YouTube videos, you know, online courses with things like Coursera and Udemy and things like that, that people can use to get themselves upskilled so they can do it. And then you can just go and sit in assessment. The problem, the problem I found with that is there's a lot of the, the certifications are based around what they teach at that particular training training place, like because um, that's the route I went on because I've no money, so I just learned everything online and then I'm studying for my OSCP right now. And that, the good thing about the OSCP is I found that everything that I've needed to study for I found for free. 
Like it's um, it's not like the the CEH and those things that have specific things that they're taught, like the the CompTIA. And um, I've got a question about the this UK certification. Is this this uh, the, what is it the check check? Is this to work in government and and military, or is it to work just in general as a pen tester? No, it's it, it, anywhere, mate. Uh, no, 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 that's not true. GCHQ have been taken to court over this. They were sued by a French company. The Czech scheme only applies to government. It can legally only apply to government because to be a Czech team leader and a Czech team member, you have to be able to hold UK SC clearance. The problem that we have with the industry in the UK is that as a badge, it's become so pervasive that companies are now looking for it. But there are cases where companies have been legally challenged and have been sued over the fact that they've said must have a check team leader badge. Legally, you only need a check team leader badge to work on HMG systems. Yeah, so, so that, that, that's an interesting point you bring up because when I started a company, CryptaSec in London, um, the first question was asked, asked to me was, are you Czech? Are you Crest? Do you, have, do you have a Crest certification? I'm like, man, I just stood up this company and of course not. But it, it's, it's those government regulations and those compliances that people really want. Why? Because most of those governments, if you penetrate a government network, you, you either have skill or you're really lucky. So they want that level of security blanket, knowing that you have that certification from the government. I mean, yes, right. I mean, you know, it's it, like I say, it's become a ubiquitous term um, that people look for legally. Right. There are there are cases that have been brought where GCHQ was sued by a French company um, because it, a bank turned around and said, we want to have Czech people. And that's not true. The real question is, how do you measure competency in these areas? Because check it as a, it's just about measuring a set of competencies. Can you do certain things? Yes or no. Um, you know, and that's really what the, the, the sort of industry needs is a way of checking and validating that you are competent in particular areas. Right. And, and, you know, th th that's part of the question of academics is the way we measure competency. Um, and there are good ways of doing it and bad ways of doing it. And unfortunately, you know, the exam way of writing an essay on X and having somebody examine it isn't necessarily the best way. But it, what it shows is in the assessments and teaching of it that we lack imagination to come up with different ways of teaching and different ways of examining things, of doing things like continuous assessments, right? You know, of having somebody assessed all the way through things. And that's part of the thing that you can do with mentoring is you can build up a really good idea of how good somebody is in particular areas, what their weaknesses are, and therefore one of the, the, how they need to address those weaknesses in terms of their development. And that's a matter of giving feedback. When I used to be the Tiger examiner, for the University of South Wales, I was a GCHU approved examiner for check team leader and check team member. We ran the Tiger Scheme and we always gave the students detailed feedback as to what their strengths and weaknesses were to allow them to improve. And we were the only scheme that did that. We were the only scheme that actually those students that failed, we sat down with them and we went through, the, we went through what they'd done in a detailed statement and say, you were wrong here, you didn't do that, you need to think about this, right, you know. You don't understand networking. You need to develop an understanding of this and that to allow the students to improve. I think that's really important because like with the mentoring and things I've seen online, everyone uh, focuses on the rock stars and there's so many people that, you know, you don't have to be, 
not everyone needs to be a rock star. And if the, if the people who are struggling can get a little, a little bit of attention, um, figure out ways to improve. Like, I think that's, I think it's something that's definitely missing from the whole mentoring thing. Tanisha, what about with uh, Black Girls Hack? Like, has mentoring worked with you guys? You said how is mentoring with, with us going? Like, yeah, like, uh, like um, Andrew's. Oh, I, I would just say, like, I mean, I think the hardest part is trying to get mentors for the different, you know, different people. We have a very hard time just trying to get enough mentors for us. You know, I'm always trying to, you know, get people to come out and, you know, try to, to, to help. But, you know, we have so many more people who need mentors than actually mentors. I think it's because people feel like they just don't um, have the need. But like, I, I really feel like mentoring is, is useful because um, especially women in the industry, we have a really hard time. Um, with, you know, getting the salary that we're supposed to be getting, you know, we know that, you know, women make uh, on average less money than men do who are operating in the same space, right? So, you know, part of that is knowing what what the value is. And part of that is, you know, just knowing what what the um, actual market, you know, worth is, you know, so it's, it's like, what can you, what does your experience translate into? Um, so, you know, we're always looking for mentors, but I, I definitely think the mentors are, are, are needed. Yeah, I, th I think I think the underlying philosophy is, you know, if you learn it, pass it on. And there's a lot of people out there because they're frightened of their jobs. They learn it and they don't pass it on because they're worried that, you know, if I can do it and I get someone else to do it, well, I'm doing myself out of a job. Um, and it comes back to the point about Richard Branson, you know, about training people to leave, but encouraging people to stay. Yeah, but I, I definitely think that it's important that, you know, people share the information. I think my whole business model, both as a human being and, you know, as Black Girls Hack is to share as much information as I, I learn with everyone else to bring them, you know, to kind of lift as you rise. Because I feel like the whole concept of, you know, I have to retain the information, I have to, you know, ob obtain the knowledge just as a source of power. Uh, is absolutely ridiculous. You know, I, I think that, you know, when you do that, you have single sources of failure um, and you have a lot of the issues that we see in companies, um, you know, when in reality, if all the information is just shared, you have a lot of different people who are able to pick up, you know, the slack where it's needed. And that depends on, that depends on aptitude too, right? So you have a, you know, a plethora of skills, right? And, you know, you don't want people niched up or that's all they do. So you expose them to the wide gamut of principles. Um, and I think academia does a good, a, a good job with that as far as like teaching the, the courses and the different, you know, aspects, but I don't think they go into, into it deep enough. Um, you know, case in point, when you look at, at cryptography, uh, I haven't been to a college or a university um, taking a course uh, that would even equal up to MIT. But, but here's the question is what, why is MIT have all of that clout and all of that knowledge transfer and none of these other schools have it? It's all about money. It's how much you pay to go to whatever university you're going to. Um, but as an industry, like that's part of why we're here, right? So we created the Haunted Hacker to give back that knowledge because we found out that through certifications and through industry standards, there wasn't a lot of that knowledge transfer going on. And people who wanted to get into the industry but couldn't afford it um, or who maybe wasn't a good student um, but had brilliant brilliant mind as far as research goes we transfer that knowledge in hopes that they'll catch on and continue following our projects and, and getting involved and they can use that as a resume um, but I, I you know I, I talk bad about you know the state of the industry because you know there are some heavy hitters that make things miserable for people 
um, and drag down the industry as a whole. Uh, but the sad, I, the but sad I think the sad ahead. thing is when you the sad thing is when you look at the history of the internet, the original guys that created the internet did it to share information, right? I mean. You know, it was about sharing information and giving people knowledge and empowering people and not becoming a way of, of hoarding knowledge and hiding things. Exactly. And that transparency, I think, is, is paramount. But I'm not going to put my tinfoil hat on, but there was a reason why DARPA introduced the Internet to, you know, the civilians and in, in, in their homes and everybody has access. So in the U.S., the, the mark of poverty, if you're if, if you're below the poverty line, it's because you do not have an internet connection in your home. That's how the U.S. gauges poverty now, is do you have an, an access to internet connectivity in your home? If you don't, then you're below the poverty line. Do they help you? Not really, but those are the standards. Um, and I, I, I give the government a hard time when it comes to cybersecurity because they do a really piss poor job and they have for, for a long time, um, but they have no problems finding and putting companies down if, if they fall uh, short of the cybersecurity stick. Um, but one thing I wanted to cover really quick is that I really appreciate the work that you guys are doing um, as a company. And I, I really love your model of the way you look at potential candidates for positions. Um, I think that needs to be reflected more across the industry. Uh, not everybody's a good test taker. Not everybody's a good student, but you know what? There are good people and you know, Einstein, look at him, you know, he, he, they thought he had a learning disability and the guy was a genius. So as long as we give everybody an equal chance um, and try to help mentor those people who maybe don't have the capability to go to school, um, don't have the money or, you know, have some kind of diversity, those are the people we really need to reach out to because those are the strong, passionate people. They really want to do this thing. Um, so I appreciate yeah, yeah. And I, I really applaud you guys, Amir Misto, for, for, for what you do and, and how you do it. Like that, that to me is, you know, if you don't make a million dollars in a year, what you've done for people and bringing them into the industry is worth that money. Um, so, yeah, my hat's off to you guys. Uh, with that, I'm going to go ahead and, and shut down the podcast. Um, I had a great time. Fantastic guests. Like the guests were paramount tonight. Like I, I can't be too too overly happy for 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 this group of people it was awesome um and it was such a wide variety too so i want to invite everybody here to come back whenever you want um paul you know andrew if you guys want to jump on and, and give your two cents on any podcast you're more than welcome you know let me know yeah. and i'll make i'll make you a co-host and we'll go from there uh but that's it and we'll see you guys next weekend look for this on the major streaming outlets like itunes and spotify and all that good stuff and uh, yeah, what did Hack so, Australia out Monday? Yep, yep. Watch out, Hack and Nine Magazine and Twenty Six Hundred, and watch out, Joe Rogan, because we're coming for your spot on Spotify. So y'all have a good weekend, and I'll catch up with you on Monday. Thanks again, Paul and Andrew, and, and you guys from from uh, Mermesto. And I hope to talk to you guys again soon. Take care. Cheers, guys. Bye.